there is nothing wrong and that nothing can go wrong and that nothing will go wrong and that if something needs to be done you will find yourself doing it welcome to the option three podcast That initial track was Terrence McKenna. It comes from the Alchemical Seed on TikTok. If you want to make a donation to Option 3, go to our website, option3project.org, to the About page. In any case, let's jump right in. What I think is really interesting about the NBA right now is the toxicity and just the one-upsmanship the unending shit talk and the comparison game. I don't know why people feel the need to continually compare this to that, to that era, to this and different players and anything. And it's, it's overwhelming. And and I think it takes away from just enjoying the game, but I guess honestly, that's what they have to do. The talking heads have to do something. They have to fill. I mean, it's not, it's actually not true. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of silence on the air. God forbid. I remember I went to a game in Orlando a few years ago, and I couldn't believe there was no, there was no time for peace. There was no there was no downtime. They were all they was continually providing you some form of ridiculous entertainment, sponsored by some form of insurance or financial planning bullshit product. In any case, let me focus myself. Draymond can be a bit much. You know, he he's said some things in the last few days that I think he's gone too far. You know, he's being a, what they call a sore winner. I hate a fucking sore winner. This is the dominant narrative that you see right now in the, the NBA is this sniping, the toxicity, and people going after the Warriors quite a bit. And the last guy to do that to is Steph. Steph is a naturally more humble person for someone who is a superstar. He's a humble superstar. But you do see him flexing, and rightly so. You know, he people have, have judged him so poorly and so inaccurately. So I, I think it's great when he goes after them and when he calls him the king of petty or the petty king. I think that's funny. The, the thing that I think is different, whereas I think Isaiah Thomas is truly a petty person at, at an emotional level, I think Steph... He's petty in a uh, satirical, intellectual level. And I think it's totally different. It's very, very different. And in the end, um, when you can dissociate that pettiness a little bit and, and get some space from it, you tend to function better in the world. And I think Steph is a testament to functioning better in the world. That's why he's part of the reason he's so good. I mean, the guy is 6'3", and he's doing, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's amazing. Some things I want to talk about in terms of the team are Wiggins and Looney. Uh, both rose to the challenge this year. In the playoffs this year, Wiggins had an average of 35 minutes, about 45 field goal percentage, almost eight rebounds, and he defended the shit out of uh, Jason Tatum. 
It's just remarkable. I really see something quite amazing in him. Almost, you know, Jordan Poole is, is amazing, and he's able to light it up, but there's a consistency and a physical strength in Wiggins. And there's the poster dunks with Luka Doncic. Uh, those obviously energize the team significantly. So I just think Wiggins is this, he's still, people still don't understand how valuable he is. And that's really, that gets back to my my larger observation. I don't know why people hate on the Warriors. I, I think they underestimate how they're going to do over the next five years. That's how much talent they have. The one, you know, the obvious problems is that Steph, Clay, and Draymond are all advancing in their age. The situation with Clay, excuse me, the situation with Steph is a little more complicated because he's so talented um, and he's already augmented his body in the last couple seasons by becoming stronger, physically more stronger, and that helped him to perform better. You know, you don't know that type of player. That type of person is going to adapt and continue to move forward despite age. With Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, with Draymond Green, the, the problem, of course, is focus. All this bullshit on the podcasts and talking shit, I think it does take a toll on his game. Clay Thompson had, had, had a very good game five, I think. Uh, so, among other things, I mean, he, he, had a good, he had a very good year. He had a huge comeback. So, it's hard to say. Both of those players, it's very hard to say where they're going. It's a question of their age. It's also worth noting, of course, Draymond Game 6 in the finals was remarkable. It was back to his standard look, which is advancing the ball and allowing Steph to play a very non-traditional point guard position while he runs point and he does passing. And the thing that Draymond did that was so much fun to watch was that he made shots. I remember there was one sequence towards the end of Game 6 it was the final push where the Celtics were beginning to show some life and he quieted the arena with a single like 22-foot shot. He quieted the whole arena as beautiful and I really love watching it. Let's talk about Steph. Steph broke the all-time three-point scoring record. He was the all-star MVP, which doesn't really mean anything in my view. He was first ever... Western Conference Finals MVP this year. He wins his fourth finals and his first MVP in the finals. He's got as many titles as LeBron, and he's done it quicker. So in the end, all this talk about KD and LeBron, and it's possible that Steph is going to get out of this era with more titles. Well, with KD's case, it's a virtual certainty. Here's an argument that you hear a lot of times about Steph is that he hasn't done the same amount of heavy lifting that Jordan did, and he didn't do as much heavy lifting as LeBron did in Cleveland. And I think that's a very good argument. It's a rational argument. But here's where I think it starts to fall apart. And I think people start to, and even I'm still, I'm, I have a lot to learn about basketball. I mean, I, I played high school basketball, then I didn't play in college, and then later on in life, I played in Native American college basketball a little bit. And that's when I came back into it. And I, I really don't know that much. <laughs> like there's a lot of things I don't know about basketball. But what I'm start, starting to sense is the role that the organization of the Warriors has had on Steph's life. And there's nothing wrong with 
being in a fortunate situation. And there's nothing wrong with taking a fortunate situation and making it better for yourself and making it better for the people around you. So all this talk about how Steph Curry didn't do the heavy lifting that Jordan and LeBron did in those time periods, in a a sense, maybe he operated on a much more advanced level psychologically and spiritually where he helped to develop an environment that built better players. The same way you could say that Jordan helped to inculcate Pippen to become a better player. The same can be said about Steph and Clay. So I, I really, that, that, that's sort of how, where I'm, get, I'm getting at that notion. So what's, there's nothing wrong with taking a sort of more zen, more relaxed approach and achieving the same goals, if not achieving more. Isaiah Thomas recently basically compared Steph to... Uh, Allen Iverson, and I don't, I don't want to diss Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson is a highly talented basketball player, but that that is such a strange comparison. It's such a total and utter failure to understand that Steph is such a much more depthful player. I, I really pay attention more and more on Facebook, and I saw someone describe Allen Iverson as a highly inefficient scorer, and I would observe observe that he was a highly inefficient non-shooting scorer you know that's not really amazing that's not an amazing thing to have achieved he if there's anything amazing about Allen Iverson is that he was like six feet or six one and 170 pounds or 165 pounds you know that's amazing and the the early the the one the one finals against the Lakers that's that that he would get his team to that level is amazing but you have to finish to be in these larger uh, har- um, discussions of who's the greatest. And again, I don't really want to get into all that who's the greatest type of talk. I just mostly want to share this idea that Steph is something very extraordinary. And if you look at how people like Shaquille O'Neal and Dwayne Wade talk about S- Steph, they're highly aware that this guy is different. And he did achieve so much. And he has, and he's really not done. There's, there's not a reason to think he's. He's done. I'm not saying LeBron is done, but LeBron's looking pretty rough. And I mean that psychologically. For all the reasons that Steph is psychologically an advanced player, the fact that he, what he and he was fortunate. He was fortunate to be at this organization that built him up, and he cross-pollinated and, and co-built the organization up itself. You know, they built him and they built and he built it back. And it's this sort of cross-pollination. Uh, it's a blessing, really. It's a vicious cycle upward, if you will. With LeBron, unfortunately, what you see is this person, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, this guy who kind of destroys organizations after a couple years. And that sucks, you know. So that leaves LeBron at a deficit in terms of, in terms of ring chasing. And ring chasing is what... You know, well, ring chasing is the wrong term. You know what I'm saying. Iguodala has said that uh, Steph is the best point guard ever. I don't really know. In some ways, it's hard to say that statement because he's such a non-traditional point guard. He's not like John Stockton or Jason Kidd. Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas did do some great things. Uh, and I and I loved that the bad boy era. But in any case, I do think 
I've had it with Isaiah Thomas. I don't want to hear his bullshit anymore. What, I want to talk a little bit about the toxicity. The toxicity in the NBA, the Kendrick Perkins, you know, saying that they're not going to have any more championships, the Jaron Jackson Jr. Twitter about strength in numbers, the Ja Morant bullshit. I don't. Even, I hate John Morant. I just like I like his game, but I think he's gonna stumble and fucking trip and fall uh, on his way back into a, a big nothing burger next year. Uh, that's my little anticipation. I don't. I don't want it to happen to him. I want him. I want him to have a good career. I want him to be healthy. But I, you know, I think he's real greasy. You know, and that greasiness it comes out. Um, it just comes out in your work. You know, that's just how it is. I see it in myself. I, I need to be a little less greasy. I get the toxicity, the one-upsmanship, the talking heads. All of that stuff is part of entertainment. It's part of the game. Uh, it's part of the cool guy clout chasing is what I like to call it. But it's no fun for me. But I think it ends up going nowhere. And in the end... The hardcore players continue, you know, move forward. And what I mean by those hardcore players, you look at like um, the Geek Freak last year had a great season. People are going to say if Chris Middleton had been had been available this year, they would have stopped the Warriors. Okay, whatever. I don't care about the what ifs, but I do respect the Bucks. The Bucks had a great season last year. That's the type of team that is is so beautiful in in their achievements. Uh, it's not a built team. And, and that's what I want to get. So that's what I mean by the hardcore. And the, the Warriors are a hardcore team. Very, um, very internally built, very successful, very integrity-based, humble on a certain level. And they're not, they're not a bunch of assholes being thrown together with money. And let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about super teams. If you look at the history, somebody, my friend pointed this out to me. If you look at the last 10, 15 years of, of, of the NBA, there's really only been two super teams. There was the Warriors with Durant, and there was Miami. Now, there's, there's been other attempted super teams, and you could, you could say that the bubble team was a super team, but, and I hate to take away from the bubble team, the Lakers winning the championship, but it seems like a lot of people tend to do that, and I tend to think that there's some truth to it. A shorter season tests a team less on the spiritual plane. And really, if there's anything like the NBA, if there's anything spiritual in sports, it's, it's, this, it's, the post, it's, the, it's that long distance difficulty of the postseason. And I personally seem to have seen it more anywhere. Uh, maybe hockey is a similar, a similar compa- a comparison can be made between the NBA and hockey, the level of athletic testing that goes on and the spiritual psychological testing that goes on but in any case to make a long story endless you see it in the nba it's a super hard thing to win an nba final. my point was like miami and the durant warriors are the only super teams that have really ever done it and who and that we can definitely say that have only the only teams that have ever become a dynasty a multi-year championship team so the whole super team era of the last 15 years, it's an interesting era that, that never really flo- never really came to fruition. And I don't think it's going to come to fruition. 
in 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 the Nets. I don't think that's going to happen. I was rooting for the Nets last year when the Warriors were out, and I just don't I just don't see them coming back this coming year. And I, yeah, I don't think Ben Simmons is going to be. He's just he's not going anywhere. And Kyrie Irving also he's not going anywhere. He's thinking about the flat Earth shit. And I you know I'm open to the flat Earth, but you kind of have to focus. I mean, what was he thinking with this? I don't want to get into all that bullshit. The fact that the bullshit's there, it already tells you that the basketball is not a priority. And that's the same problem I see with Draymond. And that's that's going to make that's going to attenuate Draymond's career. Getting back to where I began, Kevin Looney deserves a lot of respect and I really loved everything he did. He just kept showing up, kept making little plays, kept making little passes, little rebounds tons of rebounds at, at certain moments you know he just kept showing up and literally he did played like 104 games this year that's beautiful you know that's refrigerator Perry status uh, beautiful stuff and if you also take into consideration Jordan Poole I don't know what they're going to do with Gary Payton that's going to be interesting but Jordan Poole Andrew Wiggins Wiseman Kuminga, uh, coupled with the, the trio from prior, that's 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 venomous stuff. That's very powerful stuff. And we'll see. And if they add a big man, that'll be really interesting. But I've seen people suggest Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, and uh, that Frenchman with the Nuggets or the Jazz, whoever that guy is. I don't think any of those guys bring up a, a lot to the team. You know, I I think this obsession with trying to take big assets supposed assets and add them to an existingly strong team and to somehow make it into a quote like again the super team I don't think that really is the direction that I would want to go in you know I didn't talk much about Wiseman or Kuminga I think the Warriors look great and I think the Celtics look great for next year Celtics were a beast but they didn't have that championship experience. Now they have a little bit. That makes them more dangerous. The Heat is also very, very dangerous, but I do not think the Nets are coming forward next year. I don't know what LeBron's going to put together. I guess he has one more year with the Lakers. And uh, that kind of wraps up a very informal discussion, you know, Warriors fan-based discussion of the NBA it's been a lot of fun to see the Warriors come back. And it's been fun to watch Steph shoot. And yeah, that's about it. According to the Washington Post, the hacker group APT29, also known as Cozy Bear, was behind the 2020 solar wind attack. They may have been working in conjunction with the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. Victims include private firm FireEye and the Departments of Treasury, Homeland Security, Commerce, and several UK state entities, 
as well as NATO and the European Parliament. Two days later, on December 15, 2020, SolarWinds reported the problem to the SEC, but did not revoke the compromise certificates until December 21st. Supposedly, an independent researcher told SolarWinds about their use of the password SolarWind123. Inside Homeland Security is an agency called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They had indicated that the hackers used other means than simply SolarWinds. Quote, CISA expects that removing this threat actor from compromised environments will be highly complex and challenging for organizations, unquote. And they said hackers use, quote, tactics, techniques, and procedures that have not yet been discovered, unquote. My interest in this subject is that the Russians seemingly had access to our networks for months, and still we didn't really have a notion of how well we are addressing the problem. It didn't help that the Trump administration eliminated the cybersecurity coordinator position. On the show Cyber War in 2016, Vice Magazine covered Chinese and Iranian efforts to spy and potentially hack infrastructure networks. It's reasonable for me to assume that everyone is spying on everyone. I also suspect that China and Russia are aware that anything beyond monitoring would produce risks. There's a great deal of stability built into this situation. I think Russia and China might be more organized and maybe more advanced, I don't know, not because they have more resources, but mostly because they have less divided nations and more authoritarian structures that allow them to make decisions more quickly. But ultimately, I think where the risk really lies is in hacker groups that aren't tightly aligned with nation states. If you take in consideration the colonial pipeline ransomware cyber attack, it was primarily a financial scheme, which makes it more than a monitoring effort. But I think it would, and also it was tolerated by the by Russian officials. Ultimately, it was sort of street level hackers. And I think that's that's kind of where people should have more concern. Hacker groups might be able to do things when they lie outside the purview of states. The U.S., China, and Russia all have an interest in staying ahead of these organizations and keeping them well-behaved because people don't want to have outright conflicts between these nations. And when I mean people, I mean people who work inside these nations at the highest levels. So I actually don't think the solar winds is such a big deal. I think it's an interesting subject. Obviously, we continue to become more deeply enmeshed in technology. So... And you know, the world is definitely kind of kind of crazy in that regard. Um, I think the Facebooks are much more dangerous than than the hackers. So I didn't say this earlier. But it's uh, definitely not winter. <laughs> it is June, and I'm finally getting to producing the winter episode, winter 2022 episode. And this will be the first time I'm covering COVID in an audio environment. I did two posts on my blog regarding COVID. In the first one, I addressed your average questions. I call it brass tacks. COVID is not just a biological killer or an economy smasher. It's a nation killer. And I think that's something that that everyone understands, that the Americans understand, the Chinese understand. It's very disrupted to social order. And that's kind of ultimately where I get in the following blog, which is called, uh, subtitled, 
system of systems failure, different from a systems failure. So I make four points. First, I talk about systems failures. Then I, t I, then I define what a system of systems failure is. Then I talk a little bit about fragmentation. Then I return to do a conclusion of sorts. I'm reading now from my own blog. COVID is revealing failure and fragmentation at many levels. The respiratory system, the body as a whole, individual hospitals, the public health system as a whole, various political economic systems, and the biosphere itself, unquote. I recently watched a TED Talk with global health expert Alana Sheikh. She argued, among other things, that the coronavirus reflects our own push deeper into the wild. It implies that we have some culpability here. Many journalists have made the observation that COVID is revealing weaknesses in our institutions, our structures, and systems, and these weaknesses may imply second-order human culpability. That's how I address the systems failure concept. Then I started to get around to the subject of a system of systems failure. Fareed Zakaria says we, quote, are in the early stages of what is going to be a series of cascading crises reverberating throughout the world, and we will not be able to get back to anything resembling normal life unless the major powers can find some way to cooperate and manage these problems together, unquote. His perspective is a very vanilla version of a systems failure. But he's also broaching the question of a systems of system failures because he's talking about cascading crises compounding each other. So let me take a moment to define a system of systems. A system of systems is a collection of task-oriented and dedicated systems that pool their resources and capabilities together to create a new, more complex system which offers more than simply the sum of the constituent systems. I grabbed that from Wikipedia. So there's a lot of moving parts here. I, I'm utilizing both pretty conventional academic ideas and then I'm bridging them over to some psychoanalytic or philosophical or however you want, whatever terminology you want to use. As an exercise in introducing those other ideas, let me finally get to the Joanna Macy quote. Eco-philosopher and religious studies scholar and systems theorist, Joanna Macy, regarding climate change and consumption, which literally, in a sense, subsume the COVID question. Thich Nhat Hanh said, remember when he was asked what's the most important thing we can do for the sake of life on earth? And I think his questioners were asking, you know, should we work in the system or sit on a zafu or meditate or climb the barricades? He didn't go strategic at all. He said what we most need to do is to hear within ourselves the sounds of the earth crying. To hear within ourselves the sounds of the earth crying. If COVID is not the beginning of an apocalypse, and when I say apocalypse, I mean something in a Jungian sense, a time of renewal and transmogrification, if we're not in that time period, COVID is a warning shot about a possible entrance into that time period. And it has to do with the question of culpability is important. And that's where Alana Sheikh, who I referred to briefly earlier, and will She'll be the basis of my conclusion. That's, that notion of culpability in all of this is very important. We face the gnashing of teeth. In the blog version 
of this piece, Macy talks about the Bardo. It's a serious matter. It's where you go, my understanding, I don't know a lot about Tibetan Buddhism, but it's a part of the dying process. And she talks about how you meet Buddha Akshobhya and how she compares Akshobhya to COVID and how COVID is putting a mirror to us. So we're forcing ourselves, we're being forced to look at ourselves. Okay, so then that's kind of like the two steps that I did. There's the system failure, very vanilla, Alana Sheikh, system of systems failure, Fareed Zakaria bleeding into Joanna Macy, quote. And then I sort of continue to build out the system of systems failure, and I talk about fragmentations. The first fragmentation is the health, the body, the body reacting to COVID. The second fragmentation is reduced economic activity. So we're sort of, we both went through that in a major way. And to some extent, we're still stuck in that because of the supply chain issues. Then you have the third fragmentation, which is food. And we we vividly saw that in 2020. And we're still seeing it uh, with this interrelated second order impacts, economic, you know, economic second order impacts issues. And we're still sort of dealing with that right now. Here's where it gets really interesting. According to an article in The Nation, Lords of London has focused on food system shocks in the past and identified the potential to disrupt stability. They did this sort of same analysis when it came to the Arab Spring. That's kind of what I'm getting at now. And now if we add the Ukrainian breadbasket to this discussion, now you're so, you are beginning to see the breeding ground for a system of systems failure, a global collapse. And this is where Omar, Omar Haq, who I refer to, who I have this sort of love and hate, uh, I'm, I, I love and hate him. I think he's very good, but I think he repeats his headlines all the time. But he gets into the question of a civilization level, level collapse. These are the questions we face, and they are not being addressed in the mainstream media. So coupled with the deepening of the third fragmentation, which I, I connect to food and, and greater stability, is a fourth fragmentation of governance. If we see a fourth fragmentation of governments, and if it co if it works, if it lines up, if it starts to harmonize, if it starts to harmonize with the third fra- fragmentation of food and the second fragmentation of the economy, then you have major, major problems coming forward. And that was sort of my analytical framework in the blog. But I want to, but I did come up with a, a final, final conclusion to all of this, and I want to present that now. And so I come full circle to Alana Sheikh. There's going to be more outbreaks, and there's going to be more epidemics. That's not a maybe. That's a given. And it's a result of the way that we as human beings are interacting with our planet. Human choices are driving us into a position where we're going to see more outbreaks. Part of that is about climate change and the way a warming climate makes the world more hospitable to viruses and bacteria. But it's also about the way we're pushing into the last wild spaces on our planet. 
When we burn and plow the Amazon rainforest so that we can have cheap land for ranching, when the last of the African bush gets converted to farms, when wild animals in China are hunted to extinction, human beings come into contact with wildlife populations that they've never come into contact with before, and those populations have new kinds of diseases, bacteria, viruses, stuff we're not ready for. Bats, in particular, have a knack for hosting illnesses that can infect people, but they're not the only animals that do it. In the last 60 years, we've seen the Asian flu, Hong Kong flu, HIV, SARS, swine flu, MERS, and Ebola. Coronavirus is about overconsumption of the planet. We've gone deeper into the jungles and pulled out a virus. That's why this has happened. Even if you consider the gain of function research, and I have considered that, even if you consider the conspiratorial concepts of research in the Wuhan lab, and I have considered that, it all still fits within the framework of abusing Mother Earth, over-consuming its talents, over-utilizing its magic, forgive the term, and that's what I'm getting at here. It's a dangerous game that we've been playing during the uh, industrial era, and it's all, it's all catching up, and we're gonna see it in real time within our lifetimes. <laughs>